Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Good Friday, folks. Welcome back. Outkick the Culture podcast. I'm Jason Martin, your host at JMart Outkick, as always. Sorry about last week. Missed the show. Uh, Honestly, just needed a week, quite frankly. And without going into too much detail, and this show is going to be wide ranging, we have to talk about what's actually happening in the news because it influences pop culture so much it influences the entertainment industry so much i'm not going to go into too much of the specific details of what's been alleged against various people but i'm going to speak to the overall story and i think what it means in a larger context and it's sobering to say the least then we're going to have more fun and go in depth spoilers all over the place just so you know of Stranger Things 2, which I have now written around 10,000 words on in the last two weeks. Nine reviews, episode by episode, day by day, that you can go find at Outkick.com. Plus, I reviewed the entire series the day that it released. That was a spoiler-free review. But again, if you haven't watched the series or if you haven't watched this season and you don't want it spoiled, I would advise being very cautious about this podcast today. But we're going to talk about that. We're also going to talk a little bit about This Is Us today. And this Kevin storyline that is really dragging this show down in a way that right now I'm not having nearly as much fun watching it, certainly, as I did in the first season. And this is something we were afraid of and something I talked about on this very show in the past. So we'll talk about that and I'll see what else pops into my mind, quite frankly. I saw, I will say this off the top, I saw Courtney Barnett and Kurt Vile last night at the Ryman Auditorium. It's the last concert I'm going to see in 2017 unless I decide to go to Garth Brooks here in town. The idea of going to see Garth Brooks in Nashville, kind of something you might want to get off your bucket list, even for somebody that is certainly by no means a gigantic country music fan. I do like Garth and the country music I like. Zach Brown, Eric Church, uh, Sturgill, Jason Isbell. Uh, the numbers, the names are increasing. Margot Price, who I'm going to see in January up in Louisville. You know, the the ones that I love, I really love Chris Stapleton, but the, the Luke Bryans and the Florida Georgia Lions and all that kind of stuff, that's never really been me, certainly, but Garth is, is a little bit different. But I saw Courtney Barnett and Kurt Vile, and I wanted to start here just because it's fresh in my mind. I saw it last night. It actually hasn't even been 12 hours since I left that show. And tickets were cheap. I think it was about 35 bucks, maybe 40 bucks, And... They played, you know, 85 minutes, somewhere in that neighborhood. It wasn't a particularly long show. It was about as long as the Bone Eaver show, actually, that I saw on October the 29th at the very same Ryman Auditorium here in Nashville. And that ticket was three bills. And I enjoyed this one much more. And I've told you before that there have been some really good albums that have come out this year. Spoon's Hot Thoughts is something I recommend to everybody. Great record. Jason Isbell's Nashville Sound. Jason Isbell and the 400 Units Nashville Sound. Excellent. Margot Price, her new album, fantastic. And there are some others as well. I have not gotten to hear Julian Baker's new record. She opened for Isbell the first night that I saw him. And it's the second time I've seen her open for an act in that building. 
and she is amazing. So I really am looking forward to hearing that record. The National Sleepwell Beast also certainly in that line for me of these albums that I, I really think that you should go out of your way to try and find a deeper understanding by the war on drugs. I actually haven't gotten to hear it yet. And I love the war on drugs. It's just, you know, some things you just haven't had time to do. Another is gang of use, go farther in lightness. That's something that Stephen Hyden of Uproxx mentioned said, look, if you're a fan of the national, you should definitely listen to these guys. And I just haven't had a chance yet, but when I do, I'll be able to talk about that. But Margot price, all American made is the name of that album. If you were wondering, but of all of those albums that have come out this year, Courtney Barnett and Kurt Vile's collaboration that came out, I guess somewhere around a month ago, somewhere it was it was October 9th, somewhere in that neighborhood. A lot of sea lice is the name of the album. The sea lice is the name of the band that backs them up. I think it's the best album of the year. I know it front to back. It's one of the first times I've been at a concert where they've played an entire album, even though they played one song out of order and they did spruce in a couple of other things between it. All nine songs were played, and I knew the words to about 80% of it. I actually sat down with the lyric sheet and learned a lot of it, quite frankly, because I enjoyed it so much. I can't possibly recommend that album enough to any of you. Any of you that like my music taste in particular, but anybody that enjoys... Just good music with a lot of guitar work, simplistic, a vintage feel at times, a folk feel at times, an electric feel at times, solid lyrics with good diction. I just really love that record, and I can't put it over highly enough to you. And getting to see them last night, it's the first time I've seen either one of them in person, and I really didn't know much of Kurt Vile. And I've now kind of begun listening to his music as a result of this album. And I already liked Courtney Barnett, but if there was one thing that's happened in 2017 for me musically, I would suggest that it is going from liking a couple of songs of Courtney Barnett's to liking pretty much everything she's done. I've gone back into the Sea Full of Split Peas double EP. I've gone to live at Electric Lady Studios. And of course, the the big one, the Sometimes I Think, Sometimes I Sit and Think, and Sometimes I Just Sit album that I liked a couple of songs on and now I'm listening to front to back and pretty much know it all by heart as well these guys are awesome Courtney Barnett's going to be around for a long time I believe she's not yet like as a performer she's someone that goes up there and she performs and she's nice and you can tell she's pleasant and enjoys what she does but she's not some kind of outlandish crazy she's not Mick Jagger up there I don't think she's ever going to be and if you listen to the way she sings it kind of makes sense in the context of how her voice, how she happens to use her voice musically. She's clearly having a good time. And I don't think that she's concentrating so hard on the performance she can't have fun or can't go nuts. I just don't think that's necessarily her personality. I think there's a lot of acts that are that way. But musically, these two went up there. They performed that entire album. They played a couple of solo pieces from each and they played a couple of other tunes, about 15 songs in about 85, 90 minutes for a cheap price. And it was excellent. It's always good when you go to a concert and they play stuff off the album and it doesn't have a whole lot of tricks in it. David Spade always used to talk about going to concerts. It's like, I don't want the tricks. I want to hear what I know. I don't mind the tricks. You know, I grew up going to fish concerts when I was in high school and I love the jams and I love the Weekend Pog groove and I loved all of it. 
and I still do, but there are acts that I really want to be able to recognize that song. And if you want to go crazy with a solo in the middle, that's good, especially when you have somebody like Vile that is such a talented guitarist. But I was really happy to just get the meat and potatoes last night. It wasn't a flashy show. It was just a great rock and roll show. And again, I urge you to check out that album. If you have Apple Music, if you have Spotify, whatever it is. If you have 10 bucks, we just want to go buy a CD. A lot of sea lice. Courtney Barnett and Kurt Vile, my favorite album of the year. I think you're really going to enjoy it. So I wanted to start positively. I also want to thank some friends. I'm not going to name them because that's not the point. I don't think they'd want to be named either because that's not why they did it. But this week, in ways that I'm just not going to go into detail about, has probably been the most difficult week of my entire life. You would not know that because I made the decision on Friday, a week ago today, to go social media dark from around Friday at lunchtime. I think that was around the last time I tweeted. And I tweeted for my very close friend, Brandon Hagney, the producer of the Wake Up Zone here in Nashville on 104.5 The Zone, his birthday, tweeted something about that. And then I did not so much as even check Twitter until Monday morning in this studio when I had to as part of my job. And then the next few days after that, when the show was over, after I tweeted out my Stranger Things review for the day, or in one case, my Ric Flair review, another thing we're going to discuss on this show today, I got off Twitter. I decided to see whether or not my life would be happier, my mind would be purer, I would just feel better if I wasn't on social media, if I wasn't subjecting myself to it, because I found in my own fallibility as a human that within five minutes of going on to Twitter in particular, because I don't spend much time on Facebook at all, I am angry. I am jealous, I am lonely, I am prone to try and lie to make myself bigger and better than I am, and I see others doing the same thing. And I see ideology being sprouted on all sides that is not for good purposes. I just see something unnecessary, and I've come to the realization that this world would be much better without it. Many of you would not know who I was, potentially, had it not been for some tweet that led you to me. In a lot of cases, at least several hundred of you, probably that Politico article. And the uproar from that and most of the people that saw that came from tweets. I know Twitter can be a really good thing. But my life was much better without it, quite frankly. And as I decided, I didn't need, and there were times, it was crazy. There were times over the weekend where things would happen. I'm like, ah, this is what I need to tweet. And then I would say, no, not going to do that. We're simplifying life. We're trying to get to the essence of what's important and toss to the side things that are not. So I did that. And then early this week, something happened. Didn't involve anybody else. If there's anybody out there that thinks this relates to them, it does not. This is not on this is not on a human plane. But something happened to me that I never have experienced before, that I had never read about before, that I didn't know how to handle, quite frankly. And it led me to a time of introspection 
in which I felt more just empty and alone than at any time in my entire life. And it's amazing because it it came at a time where I've been seeking out my faith more than ever before. Far more, as a matter of fact. Reading the Bible, praying, trying to learn verses now over the last few days and commit those to memory. Seeking out Christ in every facet. And what happened to me earlier in the week challenged all of that. And challenged it in a way that I knew was not coming from me. But nonetheless, it was basically spiritual warfare that was occurring in my mind. It was spiritual warfare that left me completely desolate. I didn't know how I was going to handle it, quite frankly. There was a part of me that thought I needed to call out of work for a day and just take a sick day to try and refocus. I didn't feel like there were answers And so I reached out to a few people, a few friends, and I almost reached out to more, but I did not want it. I just went to a few people because I needed them at that very moment. And a lot of times it takes a while to hear back from a couple of them, the two of the three in particular, with their schedules and things that are going on. And within five minutes, all three of them, I think, had gotten to me. And they all had a very similar message for me. And since that point, which was about 48 hours ago, I'm still dealing with this, by the way. This has not gone away. This is something that I think more people go through than I knew when I actually went and looked up what was happening. I found out, you know, there are a lot of people that have gone through this, especially as they've begun to get deeper into the faith side of things. But I know this is a pop culture podcast, but I can't go any further without thanking those three individuals who, if they're listening to this show, and I know that at least two of them do, they will understand why I will keep them anonymous here just because this was a special moment between people that trust one another, friends that would do anything for one another, especially in this case. And I am here, and you know, yesterday I thought, I'm gonna, I'm just going to take another week off. I'm just going to tell people I'm sorry and I'm going to take another week off because I just I need to continue to simplify my life a little bit more, get some of the clutter out of it, and really start to focus again on things that are important. But then this morning, I immediately had a sense that I wanted to do this, and I had topics that popped into my head. I hadn't really been preparing to do this show. I was preparing under the auspices that I was probably going to take another week off, but here I am. And it's not thanks to those three people, but I'm coming out of this situation slowly but surely. And the friendship and the care and the compassion and certainly the prayer from those individuals will not be forgotten. And I just had to say that. And it's tough because you go from that to this story that's happening in Hollywood right now that kind of kicked off with Harvey Weinstein, if you want to kind of not think about Roman Polanski or even the Woody Allen stuff through the years or Bill Cosby or whatever, but the latest rash that began with the Harvey Weinstein revelations and the New York Times article and the New Yorker article, which brought us all to our knees asking God for help, asking God to save this world again from itself. 
or what we could do to assist in that process. Then came Kevin Spacey. Kevin Spacey was an actor that I loved for many years. K-Pax is one of my favorite films because it came out of nowhere and it was something I did not expect. But obviously the usual suspects and Primal Fear and Seven and so many things he's done. Most critics didn't like Frank Underwood's the performances Frank Underwood in House of Cards. I always thought it was over the top in a way that that show was always over the top and it didn't really bother me. But then the revelations come out about Kevin Spacey. Then you start to hear other things coming out in smaller contexts about other men in Hollywood and how they treated women and how they demanded things of women and how they lorded their power as men over women in Hollywood. And then just yesterday came the, and I didn't even see this story come up. The way I knew, found out about this, as I told you, I was at that concert last night, the Courtney Barnett, Kurt Vile show, and I checked my mail before Courtney's partner, Jen Clore, came out on stage to perform as the opener. And there was an email, a press release from FX, that was explaining the Louis C.K. situation and saying that they were unaware of these incidents, but that they were taking them very seriously and that they were distressed and that they would update this when they had more information. And at that point, I knew kind of probably what this was, but it didn't go into any detail in this press release. This was just FX saying, this caught us off guard. We're not happy about it. We're going to find out. We're going to get to the bottom of it. It's a classy kind of the press release that they needed to have in this case, and they got in front of it quickly. And then I looked into the story more this morning and saw just how bad it actually was. Many years ago, it seems, but stuff that's just not okay. And I said, I was in mixed company last week, and this subject came up at a birthday celebration. And I talked about how it's becoming chic to make these accusations. But I'll say this, and I do think that there, hopefully none of, I believe every accusation that I have heard. I know there are people that will take advantage of this situation, just as the you know, few and far between, this was racist, but it actually wasn't, and it was actually a hoax, stories that have come out. I think those are being blown out of proportion to make it seem like there's a rash of those when there are not. But even one is enough to harm the entire cause. So I hope that no one uses this as a way to make themselves famous But at the same time, I would also love to believe none of this is true. Not just because I liked Kevin Spacey as an actor. Not just because I loved Louis C.K. enough that last year I really wanted to see him perform stand-up in person and have that on my resume of things that I have done in entertainment, things that I've experienced in entertainment. And the day that he was here in Nashville, I already had tickets to see Flight of the Concords, who were also on a list of people that I wanted to see. And you never knew if they were going to come back. So I really wanted to see Brett McKenzie and Jermaine Clement. And I already had those tickets. So I drove to St. Louis to see Louis C.K. on that same tour. I drove four hours to see Louis C.K. His show on FX was brilliant. His work kind of helping to spearhead the start of things like Better Things, Pamela Adlon's show, which is crushing it right now on FX. 
the other stuff that he's been involved with. It's just, it doesn't matter anymore. I can't watch him do stand-up anymore. I can't watch Louie ever again. I can't watch Horace and Pete ever again. The same way that I used to still go back because I had downloaded copies of some of the earlier Cosby Show episodes from the first three, four years when there were some of my all-time favorites that I had watched so many times as a kid, both live and in syndication. I deleted all of them as soon as this stuff came out because you can't look at the guy the same way again. It's the same way I've never been able to enjoy a Chris Benoit match in the same way since what happened to him. And even my love of spoofs and parody films like Airplane and The Naked Gun even watching O.J. Simpson as Nordberg in those films became very, very difficult for me because, yes, that's a performance, but it's hard to separate when you're actually having to look at the person. I might disagree with a musician on a variety of topics. For instance, Sturgill Simpson was outside the CMAs on Wednesday here in Nashville at Bridgestone Arena where he wasn't nominated for anything, hadn't put on an album uh, during the time frame, and I guess wasn't invited to the ceremony. So he performed outside of Bridgestone Arena like any other street musician would in town, and there are so many of them here. And he was quoted as talking about the industrial prison complex and racism and gun control and all of these kinds of things. And I read this story and I rolled my eyes because he and I disagree on a lot, and I figured that we had... For a long time. I, I wasn't caught off guard by this. You know, Jason Isbell's the same way. The drive-by truckers are incredibly left-wing. Dawes wanted to perform at Occupy Wall Street. Radiohead, who is still at least tied for my favorite band of all time and has been for 20 years or more. Obviously, their politics and mine don't match up. But I said in that Politico article, that I will not be defined by my politics. I can enjoy your art even if I disagree with you. There will be things that I agree with you on, and at the end of the day, we're all members of the same human race. We've all sinned. We've all wronged others, and we've all done things for others. And whether or not I rolled my eyes at what I read that Sturgill had said outside of Bridgestone Arena... I still love Sturgill Simpson's music. But if Sturgill Simpson had been accused and there had been allegations seemingly with good sourcing that Sturgill Simpson had forced five women to watch him gratify himself in private, I don't think I could listen to Sturgill Simpson's music anymore. Harvey Weinstein, thank goodness, wasn't on screen in his movies. And you can forget about the company that made those films when you watch these movies and watch these actors and actresses perform their craft. If he was, it would be hard for me to watch them. Kevin Spacey, I can't ever watch House of Cards again. I don't know that I would have. But I can't watch it again. American Beauty, especially because of the subject matter, my goodness, That film, I can't even think 
of watching that movie again. And I've read and I've seen some people that write and say, you know, it was a different time. And there's a lot of men that are coming out now and saying that they're afraid, that they're afraid of being attacked in this way and things happening like this. And then I saw a couple of replies, one of which really stood out to me on Twitter, as a matter of fact, that I saw just this morning, that said, if you weren't a scumbag, you have nothing to fear. And unless the unthinkable, and again, I pray that no one takes advantage of this and lodges a false complaint because it's something that you can't unstick. It's something that can't be proven untrue. That's why it's so dangerous. That's why it's so unfortunate that when you lose an argument, you immediately go to the you're racist or you're sexist or you're a socialist or you're a Marxist or whatever it is to try and win back because it's something that they can't take off themselves. But if you were a scumbag and you're afraid right now, then you are reaping what you sow. Never was it okay to do the things that Harvey Weinstein, Louis C.K., Kevin Spacey, and some of the others where this has come out about. Never was that okay. Never should it have been okay when you were born with an internal moral compass. Never was that okay. It wasn't the times were different. This was taking advantage of the position that you had, of the accolades that you'd won, of the power that you possessed to get sexual, deviant, just very overbearing experiences from women who desperately wanted to make it or were completely unsuspecting and happened to be too attractive for their own good in the eyes of a Harvey Weinstein, for instance. I have no sympathy for these people. I will not judge them because I have done things that I'm not proud of. My eyes have wandered, you better believe it. When an attractive woman walks into the room, my eyes go there. And I'll think about her in impure ways. I think we all have. We will all have our moment to atone for those things or to pay for those things. But I've never considered any of the things that Harvey Weinstein, Kevin Spacey, Louis C.K., and the rest are being accused of. And I have a hard time believing anybody listening to this podcast has. That's pure evil. And, again, there's no reason to go into many of the specifics of these crimes because you've seen enough. This was awful. It remains awful it's probably going to get much worse because more names are going to come out and we're going to find out that over the last 20 and 25 years in Hollywood, men have done some really unconscionable things because they have listened to the one organ that they should never listen to as opposed to the one they should always listen to. And if you don't know what those two things are, think about it for about five seconds and it'll come to you. I'm saddened by these stories. I'm disappointed by these stories. I'm sickened by these stories. And I hope that those involved, the perpetrators, understand what they've done 
and repent, quite frankly. Because forgiveness is out there for them. I don't know that they will. I don't know their their circumstances. But I pray for each one of them. And for the women that had to go through what they've had to go through and the ones that have not come forward yet and the ones that are afraid to. And if there's one pop culture piece that I want to add to this, it's this. Sweet Vicious was a show that ran on MTV that was canceled because the numbers weren't great, although it had a fan base that was as fervent as anything we've seen in a while. It's up there with the Game of Thrones people in terms of the people that watched it that cared so much about it. There was a panel at the Austin Television Festival I attended in June and covered for Outkick.com, and there was not a dry eye in the room at times during that. And there's been speculation about them trying to find a new home for Sweet Vicious, which was a show that really exposed. At times, I thought it went too far in trying to basically tell everyone that watched it that they had been sexually assaulted. That bothered me to some extent. But the message in general was a positive one. Netflix, with what's happened to House of Cards, with them and how big Kevin Spacey is as a name, an Emmy winner for that role, and with them having made so much money off that show, could do themselves some real good by calling the folks behind Sweet Vicious and giving that show a new home. Just food for thought. If anybody from Netflix or MTV or anybody who's listening to this podcast right now, consider that. It could do some real good in the face of some very, very troubling revelations and stories that have come out that have shown the seedy underbelly of the entertainment industry and has put a mark on it that's going to be very hard to take off. And that's really all I have to say about that issue for now. I'm just saddened by it, and I think we all should pray about it. And we all should pray for the hearts of the perpetrators, quite frankly, the people that did wrong. Pray that they can come back from this. Maybe, you know, you can't necessarily pray that they get back to the same place that they were, but maybe pray that they just find themselves in a position where they can experience peace after the forgiveness. And then they can begin to atone and truly apologize to those on the other side of the aisle that they wronged. I have no segue. Stranger Things 2. I'm going to take it from a different perspective. I wrote over 10,000 words on Stranger Things 2 in 10 different articles. I thoroughly enjoyed it. I told you in a non-spoiler way a couple of weeks ago, I thought that it was better than season one in many respects, and I still do. Chapter seven of season two, which was the L side story in Chicago, where she meets Callie and robs a convenience store and realizes who she is and who she's not and heads back for the final confrontation with that gate and to save her friends and to save Jim and to save Joyce and to save everyone was terrible. Chapter 7 was awful. The character of Billy, played by Dakery Montgomery, Billy Hargrove, was awful. Just absolutely terrible. 
as was Lucas's sister that just simply did not need to exist on any level because there was no story there. I have no problem with her being included if she's going to be part of the main story, but if she's just going to be a nuisance, we can just knock off a couple of minutes from each episode that she's in and just get rid of those scenes because they did nothing for me. If you want to do comic relief, you can do it better with the characters we already know, quite frankly. But the way I want to talk about Stranger Things 2 is in the message of Stranger Things 2. And I think this takes us back to the 80s, where these messages were much more prevalent than they are now in these shows that are controlled by antiheroes, where the endings are always either shades of gray or not exactly happy. And I was the guy that always hated the happy endings growing up and said, you know, why can't the villains win once in a while? And then the villains started winning way too much. And then you start to realize the reason the happy endings need to exist is because it does provide a little bit of balance to your mind because you can certainly become what you consume. It's one of the reasons why I said I probably wouldn't be reviewing the deuce next year because I just, I don't like feeling like I have to feel to watch the deuce. But Stranger Things, whether Matt and Ross Duffer had this in mind at any point or not, has wonderfully positive messages for people of all ages. Just think of how we assumed Steve Harrington, Joe Keery, who did a great job, by the way, in this season, we just knew that he was going to be this annoying jock ladies' man that was going to be just nothing but trash to Jonathan for all time. And we were going to hate this guy forever. And we all knew this guy in high school. And we despised this guy in high school. We just knew who this guy was going to be. Pretty much from the, the first time we saw him, we're like, yeah, we're not going to like this guy. He's going to be annoying. Because shows create characters like that. Billy Montgomery is an example, or pardon me, Billy Hargrove is an example of that. What did we see from Steve Harrington in season two? He gave legitimate advice to Dustin. He basically played Elizabeth Shue in Adventures in Babysitting. He stood up to his own challenger, even losing in that fight. He stood up for what he believed was right. And he became the de facto hero of the entire season. I mean, other than Eleven, of course. Steve Harrington might have been the star of season two. And no one saw that coming. Think about Bob Newby. Sean Astin, who did an excellent job in that role. Think about Bob Newby, who when we met him, we all wanted Joyce with Hopper, so we weren't going to like this guy. He was going to look like he was nice, but he wasn't going to be nice, or he was going to be a geek and a nerd and... Nothing else would matter, and we would not. We would just pray for this guy to die. What happened? He was a hero. He gave his life to give Joyce and all of the rest a chance to escape because he knew that from an efficiency standpoint and from a knowledge standpoint, he could get in and do what needed to be done in a way that Hopper couldn't. And if Hopper had been the one to do it, Hopper would have died, as with everybody else. So Bob knew he was the only one capable of doing it because of his background, because of his intelligence, and he died for it. 
We also find out that Bob Newby started the Hawkins Middle School AV Club, the club that is so beloved by all our main characters that brought them all together as friends. Bob was behind it. Bob and Hopper never really argued with one another. They both played the hero. So again, we thought Bob was going to be one thing. And in the end, Bob had a heart of gold. And as I wrote, he also had balls that clank. And he died. How about Owens? Paul Reiser. We just knew he was going to turn into Brenner Part 2, or worse. That he had the worst intentions. That he might have even been working for the Shadow Monster. We didn't know. But this guy was definitely going to be evil. He's in a white coat in Hawkins' lab, and we saw Hawkins' lab in Season 1, and we know what they're capable of doing, so we know who Dr. Owens is. He's bad news. And then what did we find out? He was legitimately trying to help Will. He was legitimately trying to help Elle when he presented that birth certificate at the end. He was not setting them up to die. He almost died himself. If anything, Stranger Things 2 taught us that people can grow, they can mature, and that first impressions might not always be the best impressions. The fact that those characters all experience some form of redemption, some on screen with characters they dealt with and some just with us, like with Bob. Bob never did anything wrong on screen, but we were predisposed to dislike him. All of those characters found redemption. And as a result, all of them were incredibly worthy of the screen time that we got from them. Because the themes of redemption and of not putting somebody into a box based on what we originally thought of them, and of the determination and inner strength and love, quite frankly, shown by Lucas and Mike and Dustin and Will and Joyce and Jim and, yes, Owens and Newby, and everybody not named Billy Hargrove on this show, basically, was amazing. There are so many examples of the opposite on television. You can go so many places and not find the messages that came from Stranger Things too. And again, I do not know if any of it was intentional. But think of the shadow monster within Will. And how they eventually got it to go away. Not, not with the fire, but the idea that they were able to blind it with light. And that the answers came in an unexpected way. And that when all of these people believed that they could knock this spirit down and finish it off, they did. And inside of the one person that was fully afflicted, deeply by the mind flayer. Even he was able to recover just enough of himself to thumb out that Morse code and give them what they needed to know to stop this, at least temporarily, as we would find out in the last scene of the season. 
there are so many ways that I could take this into a place of religion and theology. It is amazing. I don't think that the Duffer brothers set out to do this. I have not read anything that tells me that they do. But it doesn't really matter, does it? I didn't have to reach to get to any of these conclusions, folks. They were all right there. When you tell a story with a good message, when you tell a story of redemption, of hope, of people working together, of people not stereotyping one another, and of growth and maturity, it just seems to work out a lot of times that you can very easily allude to something else. Stranger Things 2 had the lowest of the lows with Chapter 7, the lowest of the 17 episodes we've seen of the series. But the middle episodes were, to me, more interesting and more consistent than the ones from Season 1. And I thought that the finale, I thought Chapter 8 was the best of all of them, but, of course, the high point of the season had to be 11 returning and knocking that Demodog through the glass just in time and then having that reunion moment with Mike where he decided to go Rocky Marciano on Hopper, which didn't really work, but I guess it sort of irritated Hopper and Hopper realized he had made a mistake. That was more fan service, and that's what you get. This is why I've described this penultimate, the way penultimate drama is handled in television, where the penultimate episode, the next to last, is where you get the biggest moment in terms of the negative. It's when the stakes rise to the level where you can barely even take it, where you're being strangled to death by the nastiness that is then going to find its relief in the finale. That's why we come back and care about the finale is because of the stakes that are created and the loss and sometimes the depression created in the predecessor, in the penultimate. This season, the big death actually turned out to be Bob Newby, who gave his life, as I said, in a heroic gesture, because he had to, and he saved a bunch of other lives in the process, or gave them a chance to escape. That was a very depressing moment. And then at the end of the episode, what did we see? We saw basically every main character barricaded together in the buyer's house, which is the main setting of this show. The lab is obviously very important. But the buyer's house is where most of the heavy lifting has gone down. All huddled together. And then, boom, it ends right there. And then how fast did we get the relief in the finale? Pretty daggone fast, actually. Eleven showed up real quick. And because of the binge, we didn't have to wait a week to get there. We could immediately go there. I would be very surprised if any of you listening to this right now watched Chapter 8 and then didn't immediately watch Chapter 9. Because you had the option to do so. And that does take away some of the effect of the penultimate. Because if we had seen them all huddled together and we had seen the death of Bob Newby, it would have been a sad week if we were talking about Stranger Things on a weekly basis. Waiting for that finale. Even though we knew that we were going to be able to exhale, at least in some capacity, by the end of it. And that's what we got. Elle showed up, did what she did to the Demodog, went with Hopper to Hawkins Laboratory, closed that gate which is the only reason Chapter 7 existed. It wasn't for her to meet Callie. It was for her to rediscover what her home really was. I don't know how many examples we've seen in entertainment of someone going out to search for birth parents or search for what they think they need to know 
even though we know that their step-parent, whoever they're with currently or the life that they have is awfully good and realizing it through that process. And that's kind of what we saw here. But the main reason that Chapter 7 existed was so that Callie could teach Elle to channel her power through anger, through an emotion. And then when she came back, that's what she did, and that's the level of power and the level of control and focus of that power necessary to close that gate. And I like to think that it wasn't anger that closed that gate, but it was love for all of the people that she was saving, plus the anger, which made it doubly effective, which is why the gate closed. And then we saw everybody else in the tunnels, and then we saw something I definitely didn't expect to see, and boy was this ever 1980s. Dart comes back, and I don't mean just one of them, maybe that's Dart. No, this was Dart, because Dustin rolled up to it, called it by name, fed it, and distracted it so that his friends could sneak by, and then said goodbye to it, and Dart let him leave. Like, I... This was the most 1980s thing I have ever seen in my life, but it was great. Dustin made by far the biggest mistake of the entire season and became kind of irritating, quite frankly, during this season. The way he behaved numerous times, even in the finale, he was a little bit annoying. But it turned out that he was able to take his biggest mistake and use that to save people. He was able to take what he had done and make good out of it. Again, the examples to other things outside of entertainment are very easy to get to. This was unreal. This was the one part of the finale I did not see coming. Just about everything else was pretty predictable, as most fan service is. You've watched eight hours, a lot of which has been filled with suspense and tension and even sometimes arguments and mistakes. So here's your reward. Your reward is that we're going to let you see L roll into the winter dance, finally dance and kiss Mike. We're going to see Lucas and Max together. We're going to see Nancy notice Dustin after being rejected and even clowned by a couple of girls that did not do it in a nice way. And she went and danced with him and told him that she was, or that he was of Mike's friends. He was her favorite. Built up his confidence. And Steve took him to the dance and made sure that his hair was, well, it was ridiculous, but Steve set it up. And this is the 80s, 1984, so all right. So we get all this positivity. Will is a normal human being that goes and dances with a girl that right now is not being possessed by a demon from Dungeons and Dragons. And it was just very 1980s in the music and the fact that it happened at a winter dance and all of it was nostalgic but super effective and a perfect way to end the season. And then they one-upped it. I wrote in my reviews that the high point of the entire season, and it remains this, by the way, was when Hopper actually went down into the tunnels for the first time when he was digging after he realized that Bob was right about it being a map, and he ended up getting lost in the Upside Down. 
and the way in which the show told us it was the upside down, although we could see the stuff floating, which made it obvious to us, was that the camera flipped slowly and turned 180 degrees so that it was literally upside down. I actually got goosebumps because I just love stuff that's done like that. So what did they do in the final sequence of Stranger Things 2? The exact same thing. We see the camera pull back from the middle school, and then we start to see it turn just as slowly as we saw Hopper end up with his feet on the top of the screen and his head on the bottom. And we saw everything flip, and then we saw the upside down, which showcased that very same shadow monster towering above the middle school to reveal to us that yes, the gate is closed. The monster is outside of Will, but the monster is still alive and we ain't done. Fade to black, end of season. Perfect. Ended on a high point, started well. The middle was much more consistent to me, really with the exception of chapter seven. There wasn't one episode of this season that I did not like. Sean Astin was great. Brett Gelman, who played Murray Bauman, was awesome. Sadie Sink, I don't think we've seen the best of yet because the Max story didn't go as far as I'd hoped it would. We got an introduction to her, so I assume she's going to be much cooler and much more fun in Season 3 now that we know who she is. And I hope that her brother is gone for good. The stakes were raised. They brought more monsters. It was bigger and badder, but it didn't lose what made the first season effective. It did not try to reinvent the wheel. It simply perfected its own wheel. And thus, I thought it was a a better season, a more entertaining season, and a more memorable season than its predecessor. The only other failure to me was keeping Elle away from everyone other than Hopper until the finale, because Millie Bobby Brown interacting with Gaten and all of the main kids on the show, Caleb and even the older kids as well. But more so than anybody, obviously, her interactions with Mike Wheeler were taken away by what they did. And as a result, it made her storyline more boring to me to watch. It was interesting as she found her mother and we saw all of what happened. And those flashbacks, I think, could have happened, but still with her being tied to everybody, it made for this great reunion scene in the finale but getting there, I just didn't have as much fun watching Elle as I did in the first season. I might be alone in that, but I thought that that was a mild misstep for sure. Not as big as Billy and not as big as Chapter 7, but those were some blemishes on an otherwise really good season, Lucas's sister being another one. But all in all, I thoroughly enjoyed Stranger Things too. And if you have any more or if you want more from me on Stranger Things 2 and have not read it, I have 10 different articles that you can go search for at outkick.com. Just type in Stranger Things. They'll all come up in order. And you can read about each episode in detail. I did at least 1,000 words on each one. Most, many more. And you can get my feelings there. I wanted to talk about This Is Us. I don't know that I'm going to, honestly. Kevin's storyline is awful. Performance is still good, but and I told you this was going to happen off the beginning. He was going to get into pills. He's gotten into them really quickly. He's now broken up with Sophie, 
He's losing it. People are starting to notice. It's just bad. It's been done before. It looks like a poor after-school special. And when you juxtapose the execution of that with something like the storyline with Deja and her mother and how that all contrasted with Jack trying Jack and Rebecca trying to adopt Randall originally and dealing with Delroy Lindo, who the character of Judge Bradley was certainly annoying, but Delroy Lindo is awesome, and he was great here. Still my favorite part of Gone in 60 Seconds, the remake, which, yes, I really like. I know it's not a highly rated film. It's also one of my favorites. It's one I've watched I don't know how many times, some great lines in that, some great characters in it, but Delroy Lindo was the best part of that movie to me. And he's really good in a good fight. And he was really good here. As was um, Sam, who played the judge that gave William Hill a second chance. Forgave him, in effect, and said, just don't screw up again, and when you're about to, think of my face. Not going to go there, but another illusion can be made. But I don't want to talk much about this as us, honestly, because the Kevin stuff was so annoying. I do want to talk about Ric Flair a little bit before we get out of here. The Nature Boy 30 for 30, which, by the way, was the second most watched installment since Made America. The other one that beat it out just barely was Catholics versus Convicts, the Notre Dame versus Miami post-Heisman Award 30 for 30 that they ran last year. Everybody really enjoyed this. I talked about it when I opened up OutKick on the radio on Fox Sports Radio a couple of days ago. And as somebody that worked in wrestling for 10 years and has watched it for as long as I can remember, Flair was the first heel that I truly hated because I grew up where I grew up and NWA, which would then become WCW, was what I had access to most. I had Vince's stuff, but I always related more to the stuff that was happening close by in Greensboro and Winston-Salem and Charlotte and Atlanta and all that. And Flair was the heel that I hated. I was too young to think he was cool. But he was the heel that I hated but always wanted to see because the matches would be great. And he had that rare ability to make you hate him but never want to or never make you want to not see him. One of the greatest performers in the history of the industry, bar none, worked basically one match his entire career, which he perfected. He understood how to get the most out of each move. He knew the formula to get to that match, and he was selfless in the way that he helped get everybody else over, made Sting a star, certainly made Dusty Rhodes a bigger star, made guys like Nikita Koloff or even Barry Windham or even Ricky Morton of the Rock and Roll Express, who he worked on the Great American Bash Tour in the mid-'80s, made them into viable contenders. He could make anybody look credible because he realized that if he took a great beating and then eked out a victory, you would hate him that much more because you didn't even think he deserved to win. As big an ego as Ric Flair had, Ric Flair was beaten up for three quarters of his career, at least. But he didn't lose a whole lot of matches. He lost a whole lot of matches when the title wasn't on the line and when the cameras weren't rolling. A lot of people went home happy at house shows, non-televised events. Because he understood this business the way that you're supposed to understand this business in a way so many people don't. 
But, and Rory Karp, who did a great job with this 30 for 30, he also did the Book of Manning and I Hate Christian Leitner, two very good installments on their, in their own rights, made sure not to whitewash the problems of Ric Flair. He was a bad father. He was an absent father. You heard from all of his children. David, I would say, in particular, stood out. Just talking about how now that he's a father, he wants to make sure he's not like Rick. We heard from his first wife, which and she doesn't talk very often. Not even sure she ever has, as a matter of fact, which was very powerful. Talking about how wonderful he was as a performer, but that she couldn't trust him and that no one could. This guy drank his life away, basically. He spent and he drank his life away. And he partied and he never missed a date. And he was always phenomenal when he wrestled, when he performed. But that was the only time he was ever happy, I think. He was the life of the party and he talked about how he slept with 10,000 women, which I think is certainly an exaggeration. And Jim Ross talked about how, you know, they would be in a bar and can we just have a couple of drinks and just have a conversation? No. Flair ordered 137 kamikazes, was on top of the bar, was handing them out to everybody and turned it into a party. And without really saying it, Jim Ross did mention that Flair's a guy that couldn't be isolated. He struck me as I watched this as somebody that was terribly afraid to be left in a room by himself with his thoughts. And had to distract himself because internally, I don't think he was truly happy. He said he loved the life of the nature boy. I honestly don't believe that. Because there was no substance behind that. He made a lot of money, which he then squandered away, which is why he had to make his retirement an unretirement. And Shawn Michaels knew it. Shawn did what Shawn did because Shawn had respect for Flair and wanted to make sure he left in the highest manner possible. But he also knew that Flair was a wrestling lifer. And there's so many people that quit in wrestling come back. And then, of course, there was a lot of money trouble. But Ric Flair struggled and he struggled and he drank and he drank and he watched his son Reed pass away and Reed idolized him and died of what? A drug overdose. Black tar heroin in a residence inn in 2012. The same Reed who he talked about a couple of minutes later had been drinking with his neighbor at 16 years old, and he laughed and called him incorrigible. He loved his son. And then he said he regretted sometimes that he was his son's best friend and not his father. There was a lot of positive in this, but I took almost everything from this as a cautionary tale. Triple H, who I thought was just fantastic, in what he said because he was so honest about the highs and lows of Ric Flair and the positives and negatives of somebody that he believes is a hero and one of his closest friends. Called him a consummate liar that only tells you what he wants you to hear. And at the same time, talked about how he really slipped in and out of reality. When he was told that Reed had flunked two drug tests, he refused to believe it. Reed wanted to get in the WWE, couldn't do it because he kept failing these drug tests. Rick was his own worst enemy because, as he said, he didn't like Richard Flair. Didn't understand him. Didn't even, I don't even think I ever got a chance to get to know him. I think Sean actually said that in the doc. When he talked about his 
adopted parents, parents that adopted him, talked about how they never really understood the wrestling industry and that his dad only saw him perform three times and that they came and saw his really nice house. And his dad said, why does anyone need all of this? Ric Flair needed it because he did not have any substance in his life. He said monogamy made him miserable, which is why he cheated on numerous women and certainly, of course, was on the road with every woman he could find. To me, it's sad. It doesn't hurt my impression of Ric Flair, the performer. It just hurts me that he overlived his life and wasn't able to ever step back and stop and enjoy what he had been blessed with. As a documentary, it could have been longer, which is something that I've heard some other people say, and I do agree. They could have spent more time, but this was a pro wrestler on ESPN, and you never know who was going to watch it. It was certainly not for the same audience necessarily that was going to be watching the NFL. But if you look at the ratings, I think maybe they'd say, okay, we should have given this more time. But it was exquisite. It was great. Best since made in America of these 30 for 30s. What Carter lost was awfully good. There have been some, they've all been really good pretty much from the beginning, but it's the last crop I think has all been pretty solid. What Carter lost and Nature Boy, which are the last two, I think, other than the scab one that kind of just sort of fell by the wayside, were just excellent. And this Nature Boy thing, I think, leaves you with a lasting impression. When they ask what his legacy is, when Rory says, what do you want your legacy to be after you die? And he says, well, I can't say I'm the best father. I can't say I'm the best husband or the best man. So I guess I'm going to have to settle for hoping everybody says that I'm the best and most entertaining professional wrestler that ever lived. And there will be many who will. I might be one of them, as a matter of fact. It's not an obituary I'm looking forward to writing. It's a tribute that I will probably write through tears, quite frankly. But if you look at your life and then your legacy is that you're the greatest pro wrestler ever and you have, well, you have one child that's passed on, one that is giving you more joy than anything you even did in your own career, Ashley, Charlotte, and what she's done and what she did, honestly, to fulfill the promise of her brother. It was his dream, not hers. And then she discovered in doing it to try and fulfill his promise that she was awfully good at it and it changed the course of her life. But all that Flair put his family through. I feel like when I die, I hope my legacy isn't in podcasts or radio shows or columns written, but instead is in the hearts and the minds of the people that I've come in contact with my life. I spent so much time trying to be known. And I'm lucky that I'm starting to care less and less about that very thing. My friends and my family, and certainly my God, those are the things that are important to me. And I'm not even sure that at this point, Rick understands how much he lost 
while he felt like he gained the world. But it was a great documentary. If you haven't seen it, you should. So this was a heavier episode of Outkick the Culture, I think, than I expected to deliver. But I hope you enjoyed it, and I hope you took something from it. And Stranger Things was a heck of a lot of fun. And please, please, if you love music, check out Courtney Barnett and Kurt Vile's album. And then tweet me and tell me I'm a genius for telling you to do so. Be good to each other this week. To God be the glory. This has been Outkick the Culture. I'm Jason Martin. Follow me on Twitter at jmartoutkick. I might not see it, though, because I'm not doing Twitter much these days. We'll talk later. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.